Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord God, for our worship today, Lord. We thank you, Father, for meeting us in worship today. Lord, we thank you for our liturgy and our music today, Lord, our confession of sin and of faith. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we... I've heard it read, and we pray, Lord, as we continue to worship through its proclamation, Lord, and through Eucharist and through more singing, Lord, that you would honor our worship, Lord, and that you would pour out your spirit among us, Lord, to believe and to understand and to confess what your spirit has inspired in your word. So, Lord, we give you thanks for calling us into the gathered worship of your body this morning, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at 1 Timothy. We're going to spend the rest of ordinary time uh, until uh, Christ the King, at least, in uh, the letters of Paul. Uh, But last week we began uh, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And in in verse 15, Paul, he proclaims to us, to the church, a trustworthy saying that he says was deserving of full acceptance by the church. And it was that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then... Throughout the rest of the text, Paul holds himself up as an example, and he, he proclaims out of that example very, three very clear implications of that trustworthy saying. He says, he told us that Christ came into the world to save sinners regardless of their past sins. He said Christ came into the world to show grace and mercy and the patience of God. But also, Christ came into the world to save sinners to put those saved sinners to work, which is the one that none of us are all big fans of, right? But, but it's in that final implication then that our text for this morning is really built upon to put saved sinners to work. Because if you remember last week, or if you weren't here, or haven't had a chance to listen, all of this work centers around one word that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 12, which is the word service. And we got to looking at that word, and he stated that Christ had appointed Paul to his service, which was not in reference to Paul's office. Not his office as an apostle, not his office as a preacher or a missionary or a church planter or whatever other label you want to give to the Apostle Paul. He was appointed to the ministry of service. It was a call to servant ministry, not his particular called ministry. 
which as we looked at last week, is the appointed ministry of every saved sinner. And so what Paul does in this text today, then, is to frame for us the work of a saved servant sinner, which is a great alliteration. I, mean, I think alliterations are great, right? I made that up on my fly. I'm going to pat myself on the back for that, right? I'm sure somebody else has used it, but alliterations are great sometimes. And so as we dig into this text, though, and you probably picked up on this as I read through it a moment ago, Paul repeats the word all multiple times throughout this text, and I think it's really important as he references both the work of God and the work of us, saved servant sinners. Because he says that the ministry of all saved sinners is for all, because Christ died for all. And so like last week, I'm going to give you an outline. But unlike last week, I'm just going to give you two points, although I'm cheating because point number one has a couple of subpoints, right? So I'm going to do that today. So if you like to take notes, again, this is a good uh, day for you, um, especially regarding points. But point number one is this. The common ministry, the common ministry of saved servant sinners is prayer. It's our common ministry. Now, this is common, but it's a mighty ministry. And we actually, I think it came to me in Sunday school. There was something you said, Stephen, this morning in Sunday school that I thought... Prayer is common, but it's mighty. It is a mighty ministry of the saints. And so within the first two verses of our text, Paul outlines this common ministry by labeling it both broadly but also very specifically. So let's look at both. First, in verse 1, he gives us, he gives us the broad ministry of prayer, and it is for all people. He says again, I urge then, or first of all then, depending on what translation you're looking at, I urge that petitions or supplications, prayers, intercession. And thanksgiving be made for all people. And so he begins here with that word then, or he begins with that word, uh, we could also read that as the word therefore, right? Which is, actually forces us to establish a little bit of context for First Timothy. We didn't really do that last week, which is fine, you don't have to. But, but this word therefore forces us to establish a little bit of understanding of this letter. And so you get to remember that really dorky preacher adage of, What's the therefore, therefore, right? And you can roll your eyes at it and laugh at it and mock me for using it, but it's important. So what's Paul saying here? Well, he's pointing us back to all of chapter 1, not just what we looked at last week, but the whole chapter. Well, we read, especially as we begin, Timothy is serving somewhat as an interim minister in the Ephesian church. In chapter 1, verse 3, he writes this to, to, to Timothy. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I had another moment in Sunday school this morning. You were talking about the young man that's going to Ethiopia with you. It's kind of like this, this Paul going and then leaving the guy in Ephesus and moving on. You're leaving this guy in Ephesus, although Ethiopia is a lot better in Ephesus, I think. But anyway, point is, he tells Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then, as he makes his way through this chapter, he mentions both false teachers and false teaching that have infiltrated the Ephesian church. So here's a little side note that's your biblical interpretation lesson for today. If you're reading a New Testament letter, there are usually two big things that are being talked about, either false teachers or persecution. So when you're reading the New Testament, especially the letters, you can say, what's going on here, right? Is it persecution or is it false teachers or is it both? Because more often than not, it's also both. But there you go. There's your little trick to the letters of the New Testament. But... He's telling Timothy, he's saying, you need to set things in order so that they do not teach any different doctrine. But also in chapter 1, Paul commissions Timothy in the section right before this one. He commissions him to wage a good warfare against false teaching. And by 
He tells him to do this by holding to the true faith, to the orthodox faith in Christ. Now that word should tickle your ears a little bit because we spent the entirety of July in the letter to the Colossians talking about the orthodox faith in Christ Jesus. And so with that in place now, with that understanding of waging the good warfare and false teaching against false teaching, what Paul tells Timothy then, he says, first of all, or I urge then, first of all, the very first thing that needs to be discussed as you wage that good warfare against false teaching, the common ministry of the church is to offer all types of prayer for all types of people. Chrysostom says that Prayer is the Christian's priestly work. This is how we live out our priesthood. And so while Paul uses, he uses four different words for prayer here. The distinctions are very subtle. So whether a supplication or in our bulletins petitions or prayer or intercession or thanksgiving is necessary, the type of prayer will be determined on the need at the moment. And so Paul's point is not so much to define or to distinguish the various kinds or types of prayer, but rather to urge that all kinds of prayer be made for everyone, with the emphasis on everyone. And so the common ministry of a saved servant center of the church is offering all types of prayer for all types of people very broadly. But then in the beginning in verse 2, he starts to narrow our focus a little bit. He starts to get a little more specific. And he writes that all types of prayer should also be offered specifically for kings and all those who are in high position or all those who are in authority. This is that moment where we read, and we do this a few times throughout Paul's letters and even Peter's letters, where we start to get a little itchy, right? We, start, we read this thing about praying for our leaders. And we in the West, we get, we're, we're very comfortable with this idea of self-government and representative republic. And so... We start to get twitchy when we read this whole honor the emperor, right? Honor the leaders. And we try to place boundaries around how we want to pray for our leaders. We say, I will pray for my leaders when or if he does such and such a thing. But until then, he's not my president, right? We, we do that a lot. Now, if you've made the smart move and you've gotten off of social media, you're not seeing this as regularly as people that are still on social media. But that sentiment is still out there, and it's especially out there from Christians, from the church. But Paul is telling us in literally one half of one verse that regardless if we agree with our leaders, regardless if we like our leaders, or even if we consider our leader the most evil person in the history of mankind, we are to still pray for them. I had a little illustration here, and I took it out of my notes, but I'm going to put it back in anyway just to, just to illustrate the evilness of leaders, right? We may not like our leaders, but they're not like Nero, who literally would crucify Christians and light them on fire to light up the night. Tassius, who was a first century Roman historian, said that he did this intentionally to light up the evening. So we may not like our leaders, but at least they're not lighting us on fire for their nighttime parties. Right? Our, our, leaders might, our, our leaders might be a little evil, but they're not that evil. And Paul's point here is to pray for them regardless. Origen stresses this. He says that our priestly work of prayer for those in authority is more effective in helping the emperor than even the soldier who goes out onto the battlefield and kills all of the enemy soldiers. He says because the priestly work of prayer in that work, we are praying that even the emperor himself might actually take up the whole armor of God. And so Paul directs us, he says, pray for your leaders because our leaders, they are empowered to enact laws, and to enforce laws that can either protect the church or target the church. 
And so with that kind of governmental authority in mind, Paul, through the rest of verses 2 through 4, he, he gives us three reasons why we should offer these types of prayer for all types of people, especially our leaders. Now, he might encourage us, if we were to have a conversation with him, he would say, absolutely, pray for their conversion. If they aren't believers in Christ, if they have not been regenerated and put their faith in Christ, then pray for that. But that's not his concern in this passage. In this passage, he's concerned with a few other things, and there's three reasons here. The first one, he says, pray for all types of people, especially our leaders, so that we may live in peace. Again, he says this, I urge that supplications or petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Specific prayers for authorities are to be made precisely so that the church might freely live out her faith peacefully and quietly, but also godly and dignified. Now, Paul is not telling us, and we're tempted to do this, Paul's not telling us that we should expect to live a life that is free from distress or trouble. If you read the rest of the New Testament, especially even his letter, you know, other letters, you know that that is not the case with Paul. But instead, he says all kinds of prayers for authorities is asking that they would conduct themselves in such a way that as much as possible, it keeps Christian churches safe from persecution and mistreatment. Augustine picks up on this theme and he encourages us. He says we can pray for peace because we are, make, we are able to make use of peace even in the midst of exile. He writes in his work, The City of God, he says, It is to our advantage that there be such peace in this life. For as long as the city of God and the city of man are mingled together, we can make use of peace because it can assure our exodus from Babylon. But we should also understand that peace and quiet is not our ultimate end. It's a nice thing to have, but it's not our ultimate end. He goes on in this verse, he says, our ultimate end is that the church might live in this world godly and dignified or in all godliness and holiness. Paul would write later on in this letter in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Our concern for peace is not for ourselves, but so that the name of God and the teaching of the gospel might not be reviled. So while nowhere in Scripture guarantees us peace, and more often the opposite is the case, we still pray that for peace in the world so that we might live godly and dignified lives. Here's reason number two. We offer all kinds of prayer for all types of people because it is good and it pleases God. He says this in verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, God our Savior. Right? Or in the bulletin here, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Now this provides us with a pretty decent incentive to pray. Right? We want to... We want to have our prayers answered, absolutely. And we want to have them answered in the way that we consider to be favorable. But our desire in our common ministry of prayer should be to please God. That should be our paramount desire. And God is pleased with this type of prayer because God welcomes prayers for his people to be treated with equity and justice. So that we might live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. Reason number three, we offer all types of prayer for all types of people from these four verses because God desires the salvation of all. Again, he goes on, just verses three and four again. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So remember, 
chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and God desires all sinners to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is not universalism. Right? That's, that's a, a tempting line to take this on. This is not universalism. Instead, it is the desire of God that all should reach repentance, Peter tells us. And we understand that some, by grace through faith, they will respond, but some absolutely will not. And because we are not God, and because we have no way of knowing who will respond to the gospel and who will not, ours, as we read in Habakkuk, is to live by faith and to pray and to proclaim the gospel anyway. God desires for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. One church father wrote here, he said, God desires our salvation more than we do. And this is absolutely proven by the fact that some simply refuse to believe. And then Ambrose actually follows up on this and he says, Not all desire the remedy and many avoid it, but God redeems those who do call upon him. So we offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so that they might hear and understand and believe the gospel. That's point number one. Here's point number two. We're halfway done. Point number two. Our common ministry, our common ministry of prayer, is grounded in the gospel itself. It's grounded in the gospel. And this, this seems extremely simplistic, but it's supposed to, because it is. Remember last week, the entire reason that Paul holds himself out as an example to the church of God's patience and mercy and grace was to stress the goodness of the saving work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's appointment to the service of Christ, Paul being judged faithful, he tells us in verse 12, being judged faithful through, through Christ was grounded in the gospel because Christ came to save sinners. And so here in verses 5 and 6, Paul likewise, he grounds, he firmly plants our own common ministry of prayer in the truth of who Christ is, of the gospel. He says this in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this now has now been witnessed at the proper time. Now, there's an easy temptation here to start wandering down the long rabbit trail of criticizing our Roman Catholic and Orthodox friends because of their multiple, their understanding of multiple levels of mediation, right? We're not going to do that, right? I could do that, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to do that. But I also would rather gear our discussion in a more edifying direction. So let's do something a little better than that. Let's ask a couple of questions of Paul, right? Let's ask some questions of the text. So Paul does something here that when we read this, we're like, what are you doing? So why does he stress? Why does he stress Jesus' humanity here? Again, in verse 5, he says this. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why place our focus on the humanity of Christ? I mean, if, if the goal is to be reconciled to God, if, the goal, if our goal is to be made right with a holy God, then shouldn't we be focusing on Jesus' divinity? Shouldn't we focus on his godness? So as we start to answer these questions, let's address that elephant in the room and get it out of the way quickly. Right? Paul does not downplay the divinity of Christ, nor does he ever. Again, we spent all of July in Colossians. If you need a reminder of how highly Paul regards the divinity of the Lord Jesus, then go read Colossians. Or go read Philippians. Right, Ethan? Or go read Romans. 
or go read most of the New Testament because he wrote it. Instead, what Paul does is he has two very clear reasons in these two verses for emphasizing Jesus' humanity, both of which he tells us here. He says he emphasizes it for the purpose of Jesus' mediation and for the purpose of ransom. So we're going to look at those two, and then we'll come to the table. So first, mediation. What does he mean by mediation? Beginning in verse 5, again, he says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The oneness of God that he begins this verse with is necessary in understanding both Jesus' role as mediator and his humanity. And so when he writes here that, one, that one, there is one God, he's not only stressing to us that there are no other gods. He's distinguishing that Yahweh is God over all, all people, all things, all creation. This oneness of God is necessary because if you back up just to two verses we just looked at, verses 3 and 4, it is this same God who desires for all to come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth being that there is one God. Knowledge of God has the purpose of knowing him in his oneness. True knowledge of God confesses the oneness of God. But to come to this knowledge of the oneness of God, God must reveal that knowledge about himself. And for that, humanity needs someone to help them understand it. Humanity needs a mediator. We need a go-between. And so Paul points us then. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between the one God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He points us to Christ, the mediator. And it's in this role as mediator that, G that Paul emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. So think of it like this. If, if all humanity, and we would all agree with this, if all humanity is sinful and separated from God because of our sin, then humanity is in need to be rightly restored to the one God. And to be restored to the one God, humanity needs a mediator. But not just any mediator. We need a perfect mediator who is both fully God and fully human so that we can be restored to the one God. And so by using this term mediator, what Paul has done now is he has intentionally connected Jesus' mediation with the biblical concept of covenant. Mediator pictures the Lord Jesus as our negotiator, as, as the one who institutes a new covenant between God and mankind. And as Scripture has consistently testified to us about the Lord God, about Yahweh, there is only one office in existence under God's authority that can rightly serve as a mediator between God and mankind, and it is the office of priest, which is an office that must be filled by one who is fully human. And so what Paul does then in this same verse is he says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man. He uses this word man. In Greek, this is the word anthropos, which is where we get our study of anthropology. Um, this is how we understand humanity. And so in this, re in this verse, he references Jesus as anthropos. And by doing so, what Paul does is he emphasizes for us Jesus' full identification with all of mankind, with all of humanity. And so now let's put those two together, mediation and humanity. Why stress the humanity of Jesus in relation to his role as mediator? Because it is in his office as great high priest that we find our perfect negotiator, our perfect go-between. And how, 
Through him, we can come into the knowledge of the truth of the one God. And through his work of mediation, Jesus institutes a new and a better covenant that fully reconciles saved sinners to the one God permanently, and as we read in verse 17 last week, to the ages of all ages. Because Christ came into the world to save sinners. And all of this rests on the truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. The incarnation is necessary for mediation. Ambrose would write this. He said, this text, this verse right here, this one verse, verse 5, refers us properly to Christ's incarnation. For our redemption was made by his blood. And Christ gives as the most high, but he prays as a man. The office, the, the one is the office of creator, but the other is the office of redeemer. And then Theodore of Mopsuestia says that this verse refers to the perfect humanity by which salvation is wrought. He said the fact that Jesus shares a common humanity with us is the whole key to our salvation. In the man, Christ Jesus, we have the perfect mediator because not only is he fully God, but he is fully human. That's the first reason. The other reason that he mentions Jesus' humanity in these two verses is the purpose of ransom. And so Paul, what he does here in this verse is he actually echoes the words of the Lord in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he writes this. Again, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what does ransom have to do with his humanity? Let's take a moment, let's back out of it for a second, and go back to Colossians just real quickly. Like one sentence in my notes, and then we'll move on. Go back to Colossians real quickly, and remember our major objective in Colossians, what we were looking at. And we saw there what Paul did is he emphasized that orthodoxy and orthopraxy are necessary elements for the Christian life because it takes right belief in Christ to rightly practice the faith in Christ. And so taking that objective of orthodoxy, let's place it on top of verses 5 and 6 here. Both Jesus' role as mediator and his work of ransom proclaim to us the necessity of an orthodox understanding of the incarnation of Christ. It requires his church to have an orthodox grasp of his literal flesh and blood body, of his flesh and blood life, of his flesh and blood suffering, his flesh and blood death, and his flesh and blood resurrection from the dead. The incarnation is not only necessary for his mediation, but for ransom. But then we hear this word ransom, and we, our brains start going to theories of the atonement, right? If you're thinking about how we are made right before God, and we think, okay, we get itchy because we get, we, we're comfortable, and we're more than comfortable, and rightly so, with the idea that Christ is our mediator. That is a truth that we should hold to. We're also very comfortable with a courtroom understanding of the atonement, that Christ took on our punishment for us. We were guilty. Christ stood in the way and took on our punishment for us. That is right and that is true. You can hold that as well, and you should. We are also especially comfortable with the idea that Christ is victorious through the cross and the grave. He is, and you should be comfortable with that. But ransom, we come to the term ransom, and we just get off. We're like, what does, what does this mean? And it just seems weird until we properly understand it through a biblical framework. Because in Paul's mind, ransom did not buy a person. 
It freed a person from bondage. Ransom frees a person so that they could have true freedom and liberty. And so both here and in Mark 10, 45, when Paul and the Lord both say that Jesus' life was given as a ransom, it should be understood as a redemption from bondage. Our chains have been broken. So to illustrate, think back just two weeks ago when we were finishing Habakkuk. Right? We were in Habakkuk chapter 3, and he starts to sing in that, in that chapter. That whole chapter is a song and a hymn of praise to God. And he starts to praise God out of what he knows about God. Particularly, he praises God based upon the salvation work that God has done for his people throughout history. And so as we saw there, for Old Testament Israel, this would have been the Exodus event and the crossing of the Red Sea. That was their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Y'all, Christ's ransom is our Exodus event. Christ's ransom is our deliverance from slavery in Egypt to our sin. And this was done, he tells us in verse 6, this was done completely voluntary on the part of the Lord Jesus. He gave himself as a ransom. And it was done at the proper time that God had ordained for Christ to give himself as a ransom for all people. Well, at this point, we are obviously at verse 7, just going through the text. And you've noticed I haven't touched on it at all. (laughs) But that was on purpose. Because while Paul has reminded us, he reminded us last week that every Christian is called to be servants of Christ, to servant ministry. This week, he has told us that every Christian is called to the ministry of common prayer. We know, but we also know that there are particular ministries that every believer is called to as well. And in this verse, Paul lists his own particular ministry. He says this again. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, or a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. This is a little side note he uses because of the false teaching that's infiltrating uh, Ephesus. Basically, these teachers were questioning Paul's apostleship. This happened pretty regularly, right? And so he's saying, look, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I was called to this ministry. And he was called to it as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so what he says, he grounds his own particular ministry just as he grounded our common ministry in the truth of the gospel. He writes... For this ministry, for this testimony that there is one God, there is one mediator who is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. This is why he was appointed as a herald or a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. But what does that mean for me, right? Like, that's Paul's particular ministry, but but what is mine? Now, I'm not pointing just to me, right? This is more of an application part, right? What is it for you? Because mine, I'm doing part of mine right now, right? This is part of my particular ministry. But what is our particular ministry? Because, you know, you might be sitting there, I'm not called to be a preacher, right? Right? Am I called to, to giving? We talked about a brother in Ethiopia that has been giving away all of his support to the point that he was starving, right? Uh, is it giving? Is it teaching? Is, is, am I called to missions, or to evangelism, or to discipling, or to working with children, or whatever. Am I called to the nursery? Whatever. This is not meant to be a cop-out answer, but I'm going to give you an answer anyway to help you discern God's will on your particular ministry. And it's a two-part answer, and we get it from Paul right here. First, serve Christ where you are. That's how you start to discern your particular ministry. Serve Christ where you are. Serve Him in Jackson, Tennessee, in your neighborhood, And in your home, because it begins with the common ministry of prayer. 
but it doesn't end there. Because the second way to discern your particular ministry under the gospel of Jesus Christ is that while you are serving Christ where you are, also serve him in his church. Because God has ordained his church for the purpose of helping his people to determine their particular ministry in his kingdom. As Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says, And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. All of this work is grounded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And for this testimony, the testimony that Christ gave himself as a ransom, that there is one God and one mediator. For this testimony, Paul was appointed as an apostle and as a preacher and as a teacher. For this testimony that Christ gave himself as a ransom, I was appointed, Craig was appointed, Chris was appointed as an elder and as a pastor. For this testimony, Connor was appointed as a deacon and as a worship leader. For this same testimony, you were also appointed as missionaries, as evangelists, as prophets, as teachers. You were all appointed to the common ministry of prayer, but also to proclaim Christ through your particular ministry. We are all saved servant sinners because Christ came to save sinners, to put saved sinners to work as servants in his kingdom. It begins with the common ministry of prayer, but God has ordained his church as the means by which he affirms our particular ministry. And as the means by which we are ordained for that ministry and appointed for that ministry, and sent out for that ministry, for the proclamation of the gospel and for the glory of his name. Amen and amen.